Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Matthew Feeney. He is the director of Cato's Project on Emerging Technologies, where he works on issues concerning the intersection of new technologies and civil liberties. It's my pleasure to have you on today to dive deeper into the incredibly misunderstood Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which sounds kind of complicated, kind of geeky, but basically... It's why the internet is great. It's the reason why we have food reviews and like we can shop and we can buy stuff and we can watch movies and all that stuff. And recently I spoke with Tom Hazlett about the issue and he suggested that I speak to an expert on this topic. So that's what this podcast is going to be about. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So before we jump in, I want to ask you a question that I ask all my guests, which is, what is the most important thing that people my age should know that we don't? It's a very good question. And in in preparation for the podcast, I actually took a look at some of the previous podcasts you've you've recorded with um, some friends and colleagues of mine, as well as some people that that I admire. And I thought that uh, a lot of them had um, advice that I would have given or um, had advice that was better than something I'd ever thought of. Uh, so uh, I, I liked, you know, Andrea Castillo, on, uh, sorry, Andrea O'Sullivan on uh, compound interest was very good. Uh, but I think along those lines, I mean, there's a lot of things that people who are older than you will say, uh, that's not particularly original or interesting, but uh, I thought one that I wish more people had told me when I was uh, when I was your age is, uh, and it will sound simple, but it's a I think a healthy piece of advice, which is if you can't afford it, don't buy it. And uh, I think there are a lot of people in life who get themselves in trouble with with debt and financial responsibility, uh, and that's something I wish more people had told me. Yeah, I mean. That's something that I struggle with because, I mean, with technology and stuff, every single store I could ever think of is at the, like, the touch of a few buttons, at the tip of my fingers. Like, I could just buy, like, thousands of dollars of random things I definitely don't need and can't afford. So Mm -hmm. I think it's really good advice. It's very, I mean, for me, but also I think just for everyone to know that. I think I think everyone could benefit from that advice. So that's a good answer. <laughs> Thank you. So on to Section 230. It's in the Communications Decency Act. And if you could explain what that is a little bit. And also, there are some 26 words in there which make up Section 230, mm-hmm. which are called the words that created the Internet by people who know them. Right. Um, so can you tell us about the history of it and why it's so important? Right. I I think it's really important for people thinking about this piece of legislation to consider 
where it comes from, and it didn't come from a vacuum. And uh, the, the the crux of the issue is who should bear responsibility for what they say or publish. And uh, I, in, I, I promise I won't do this on just year on year. It won't take forever. But I think it's important to consider uh, a case that the Supreme Court heard long, long before the Internet and before uh, Section 230, which is Smith v. California. And this was a case decided in the 1950s by the Supreme Court, where the court had to consider whether an obscenity law from California violated uh, the First Amendment. And and this was an important case because a bookstore owner uh, was uh, being, uh, was suing because he'd been found in violation of this obscenity ordinance. Uh, he ran a bookstore, but he, he hadn't read uh, the book at issue. He just put it into the, the bookshelf. And, and the Supreme Court said, well, actually, uh, because this was someone's bookstore and uh, he was just uh, selling books uh, and didn't know what was in them. This ordinance uh, violates uh, the uh, the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. And and that's important because this, this kind of discussion about who should be responsible for what's published or, or, or written becomes a real problem with the emergence of the internet. And uh, if you jump forward to, say, 1991, you, you have a, a case dealing with a company called CompuServe, which, which I uh, certainly um, don't don't remember ever using. And I'm sure, of course, you you don't. But this is one of these old uh, companies at the birth of the Internet, an Internet service provider where you could buy a subscription to CompuServe and you could uh, access the Internet. And you could also access a lot of bulletins and newsletters and things like this. And uh, CompuServe did not really engage in much uh, content moderation of uh, of a, a lot of the newsletters uh, on there. And it was only a matter of time before these accusations of defamation uh, arose. So there was a newsletter uh, called Rumorville, and there was a, a, company, a company called uh, Cubby that claimed that there was defamation about them on uh, Rumorville. And this uh, ends up at a in a court case and the court here actually said well you know this is you know CompuServe is just kind of like the electronic equivalent of a newsstand or a public library and we don't say that whoever runs a newsstand or who owns the library is liable for any defamation that are in the books or newspapers uh, and that yeah, was a, a court case from 91 but then a few years later in 1995 there's a court case that deals with uh, the company uh, that's featured in The Wolf of Wall Street, which might be a movie uh, some of uh, the listeners have, have watched. And there, what was interesting is it was dealing with an allegation of, of defamation, but it was on Prodigy, not CompuServe. And Prodigy was another one of these, uh, one of these companies that allowed access to a certain uh, internet fora. And... Here, the, the, the judge said, well, actually, because Prodigy, unlike CompuServe, actually engages in content moderation, they had software that screened for certain words, and they had rules about what you could and could not say. Therefore, uh, Prodigy became the publisher of third-party content. And this is what gave rise to what's called the moderator's dilemma that Section 230 tries to address. The moderator's dilemma is, well, we could either take an approach like CompuServe, where we don't engage in much content moderation, and then we're considered more like distributors, or we could engage in content moderation, but then we'll be deemed publishers, potentially. And this is a worry if you think about it, because 
there's many reasons why websites want to engage in content moderation. Uh, there's a lot of legal but awful content out there. There's you know images of animals being tortured. There's images of murders. There's there's pornography. There's there's content that's completely legal, but websites may want to screen. But on the other hand, they they can't screen everything uh, in the way that uh, many people would like because it's just too. Uh, too expensive. Social media, as we know, it would not be possible. If Im- imagine, you know, a Facebook where a lawyer had to screen every single Facebook post or event page or comments. I mean, it would it would be uh, impossible to have the internet as we know it. And so, a couple of congressmen, in the wake of the Prodigy decision, wrote Section two hundred and thirty. And in Section two hundred and thirty, there are two important provisions that are called. Uh, colloquially, the sword and the shield of, of Section 230. And the 26 words that you mentioned earlier are the the shield. And the 26 words just read, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And what that means is if you post something on Twitter, Facebook, or a comment section on a website you can be held liable for that content, but the owner of the website can't be or can't be considered the publisher of that. And then the sword uh, section of Section 230 uh, says that websites cannot be held liable for engaging in content moderation. It just emphasizes that websites are free to remove content that they deem to be uh, offensive or obscene, which allows, for example, Facebook and Twitter to say, we don't allow pornography or hate speech or images of uh, animal cruelty, those kind of things. And that's uh, that's Section 230. Uh, it, it emerged out of a couple of court cases from the 90s uh, and has been described as either the Magna Carta of the Internet or the 26 words that created the Internet. Uh, and I think uh, those are fairly accurate descriptions. It's hard to imagine uh, the modern Internet without something like Section 230. So can you give us some examples of how Section 230 is allowed for innovations in technology and on the internet? Because it seems like it just protects companies and platforms, but it also allows them to moderate their platform the way that they want. But how does it or does it even allow for innovation in that field? I, I think it does. And one of the reasons is I think that robust uh, competition is a necessary condition for innovation. Uh, you don't want to have a market environment where the same old boring companies just dominate the space. You want there to be uh, a, 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 an environment where if you're a powerful company like Google or Facebook, you, you have to worry about competition. And I think Section 230 actually does spur on innovation in an important way, namely that uh, it saves them a lot of upfront costs, which uh, is, is important, I think, for competition. So anyone who thinks they have a better idea for a social media company uh, or a better search service or, or something like YouTube is able to try and build that, uh, whether that's in a college dorm room or at a, a, you know, at a lab somewhere, they're, they're able to build that without worrying about hiring lawyers to make sure that every piece of content posted by third parties isn't potentially illegal. Uh, and, and that's very important because I think it saves uh, those who want to compete with uh, market incumbents with a lot of upfront costs. And one of the big worries I have about ongoing calls to amend Section 230 is that it would make market incumbents much, much stronger and harder to compete with. 
So what would the internet look like today if Section 230 had not been included in the Communications Decency Act? It's hard to answer that question definitively. Uh, so I will, I'll will give some Section 230 critics uh, a bit of uh, leeway here. I'll say that, look, we, we don't know for sure, but there are those that argue that absent Section 230, something like it might have emerged anyway, that the courts would have figured all of this out. And as the internet grew, uh, courts would have come up with some kind of set of rulings that would give us something like Section 230. Uh, that may be a possibility, but it's far from clear. Uh, and in fact, part of the, the problem I have with, with arguments like this is we don't know how much innovation and uh, interesting companies would have been sacrificed in those years where the courts tried to figure all this out. Uh, but if we take a, another step back and just think, well, absent this kind of protection, what would the internet look like? It's an internet without social media. It's an internet without uh, comment sections. It's an internet without user-posted reviews. And I know that today people like to talk a lot about uh, some of the big name companies uh, that dominate a lot of the internet. So Google, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. But it's important to emphasize that Section 230 protects websites big and small, and it protects websites that aren't even involved in social media. So it uh, applies to, say, Amazon or uh, Etsy. It applies to, to Dropbox. There are, there are tons of companies out there uh, that rely on Section 230 but don't get put in the, the modern day debates because I think a lot of the modern debates about Section 230 are really focused on social media. Mm-hmm. Last year, Adam Thier of the Mercatus Center tweeted, quote, the current debate over Section 230 and online content moderation has been dominated by misinformation, bad reporting, and outright lies, end quote. Can you tell us what the current debate is and what people get wrong about Section 230? Yeah, that does sound like something Adam would say. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I think he's he's right. Uh, It's interesting because oftentimes when you talk to people who are involved in policy, uh, they're in the really unenviable position of trying to explain very dense and complex either either court rulings or pieces of legislation. And and I feel very lucky, actually, that Section 230 is a relatively short piece of legislation that doesn't use too many big, complicated words. And uh, anyone in in the country or anyone in the world who speaks English should be able to read it and and get it. Uh, But unfortunately, despite that being the case, there, there do seem to be a number of persistent myths about Section 230 uh, that, that are worth highlighting. The first is, I think, that there is uh, some kind of important legal distinction between publishers and platforms, and that if you engage in content moderation, you become a publisher. Uh, this just is not true. And importantly, I think we should always remember that there are so-called publishers that rely on Section 230. Uh, so, for example, uh, the New York Times uh, publishes a newspaper made out of paper, but they also post online. And if, if, if you, for example, wrote a op-ed in the New York Times and uh, defamed me, I would be able to sue not only you, but also the New York Times. However, if there was an op-ed on the New York Times and you said the same thing about me in the comments section, uh, then I could sue you, but not the New York Times because of Section 230. That comment section is an interactive computer service covered by Section 230. And that's uh, that's very important, uh, I think, to keep in mind, which is 
Section 230 isn't just a thing for social media or even internet companies. There are there are traditional brick and mortar stores that have websites that also enjoy uh, Section 230 protection. And another uh, piece of of mythology that seems to spread around uh, Section 230 is the the allegation or the claim that you only get Section 230 protection if you are politically neutral. Uh, this has been uh, said by, for example, Senator Ted Cruz, but it is also uh, not true. And it's a particularly uh, common claim these days because one of the most important controversies about Section 230 is uh, the complaints from conservatives about alleged political bias. Uh, There's a large section of the American conservative movement these days that is convinced that uh, Google, YouTube, uh, Twitter, and Facebook, I just don't like conservatives and are trying to get rid of a lot of conservative content. And in these debates, you'll sometimes see someone saying, well, if they do that, they don't enjoy Section 230 protection. When in fact, if Mark Zuckerberg woke up tomorrow and said, look, anyone who has ever liked Donald Trump's Facebook page is having their account deleted, uh, it might be a very unwise business decision, but it would be completely legal. Uh, on on the more left wing of the spectrum, uh, you have uh, many uh, Democrats who are concerned about misinformation, uh, the infiltration of social media by foreign governments, and the spread of harmful and abusive content. So both sides of uh, the political aisle have complaints about Section 230. Uh, they're quite different kinds of complaints, but unfortunately, uh, myths about the law uh, spread nonetheless. I was actually about to ask you about that. So um, a lot of what conservatives say is that there is anti-conservative bias and that they're being censored by these platforms, by these companies. Mm -hmm. And you wrote a lot about it, including about the claim made by Dennis Prager of Prager University about YouTube and how YouTube discriminates against his videos. Can you tell us what you found? This is probably the most uh, well-known or certainly one of the most well-known Uh, conservative complaints. Uh, Listeners may be familiar with Dennis Prager. He's a conservative uh, commentator who has founded a website called Prager University, which has a associated YouTube channel. And Prager uh, alleged that YouTube was putting uh, a bunch of PragerU videos behind its restricted mode and that this uh, constituted some kind of First Amendment violation because YouTube should be considered a public forum. Uh, now, there are a couple of problems with, with the claim, and uh, Prager has lost in both courts where he's tried to make this argument. Uh, the first is, it's, it's not clear that this is uh, evidence of anti-conservative bias per se. Uh, YouTube has something called restricted mode, which users can opt into. And... People might opt into this if they are, say, uh, parents with young children or they're trying to uh, host a, a, a business that they want to be family friendly, like a school or a public library. And it just puts certain videos um, behind a wall. Uh, so videos that have images of violence or obscenity, discussions about sex or drug use. And uh, some of PragerU's videos were put behind this, uh, put this, behind this wall. Uh, and... It's not clear, though, that this was done because of an anti-conservative bias. Uh, an analysis by the trade association, uh, NetChoice, found that about 12% of PragerU's videos ended up in this restricted mode. And that compares to uh, something like, I think it was three quarters of 
uh, 75% of videos um, from Young Turks, which is hardly a, a conservative uh, YouTube channel. Uh, so there are a lot of different channels across the political spectrum that find themselves uh, in having videos put into restricted mode. And the let, let's just you know, put to one side that claim. So I, I don't think Dennis Prager is correct that this is anti-conservative bias. But he, his next claim, though, is that YouTube is some kind of public forum. Uh, and and this, I think, is is very easy to uh, dismiss. Uh, one is uh, YouTube is, is not a monopoly. There are many places on the Internet to go to find videos. Uh, in fact, conservatives who were upset about uh, YouTube's supposed censorship went on to start up their own uh, company called BitChute that you can check out. And uh, importantly, though, as um, the judges uh, made clear in, in, in rulings, that the, the First Amendment is a restriction on government, not private companies. So again, it's, it's even if even if YouTube issued a press release saying, look, we've decided we don't like conservatives very much, and we're going to put all pieces of conservative commentary behind our restricted mode, it would be completely legal for them to do that. Uh, it's a private company, and it's not bound by the First Amendment. Uh, but unfortunately, something I've discovered in ongoing debates about Section 230 is uh, there seems to be not only widespread confusion about what Section 230 says, but also widespread confusion about what the First Amendment says. Uh, and uh, that that's worrying for a, a whole other host of reasons. So then why do conservatives feel this way? We have a family friend, well, my family has a family friend, who is a mild Trump supporter and she does get blocked a fair amount and some of her tweets just don't seem that harmful that aggressive in any way and so i can see where she's coming from especially if her friends also get blocked people she follows also get blocked how she could feel discriminated against Mm -hmm. but what is going on is there a bigger picture that she's not seeing about everyone on the left who also gets blocked or are the reasons she's getting blocked not not really relating to, or sorry, are the reasons why she gets blocked so regularly just so small compared to the amount of conservatives and other people who don't get blocked that it's hard to argue that it's discrimination? It's a good question, and I don't want to comment on your your family friend's case particularly, just because I don't I, I don't know the details. But I'll say the following, which is, if 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 you are convinced uh, that there is some kind of uh, political agenda in in Silicon Valley, I would I would suggest that you go on a hunt for. Uh, complaints from your political opponents. Uh, At the moment, we're used to hearing complaints from conservatives about this kind of treatment, but we shouldn't forget that it was only actually a few years ago where the political left had similar complaints about uh, how Google and Facebook treated uh, treated socialists or the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, images of police brutality. These these complaints come from all across the political spectrum. And, And one of the features of social media is I think it makes it easier for us to isolate ourselves in our ideological bubbles. So if you're on Twitter and you only follow other, say, conservatives on Twitter and and you are hearing a lot about conservatives being so-called shadow banned or booted, and you consider yourself part of that group, it would be very easy to come to the conclusion that there's some kind of crusade against conservatives. But it's important to consider that uh, your political opponents probably have similar complaints. And what does that reveal? Uh, I think it reveals something rather important to remember, namely that content moderation is very, very difficult. We shouldn't forget that 
there are billions and billions of pieces of content posted on social media sites uh, every week. There's something like, I forget the exact figure, but it's something like every minute, 400 hours of content are uploaded to YouTube. And there are hundreds of millions of tweets every day. So th- th- there will always be false negatives, false positives in any content moderation regime. We should we should consider that content moderation is very difficult. Uh, if, if you and I, for example, sat down and we wanted to compete with Facebook, we wanted to found our own uh, f- our own social media site, you and I would have to come up with a content moderation guide, you know, images that we wouldn't want to appear, even if they're legal. And you and I might might say, look, maybe we should just ban images of, of child nudity, which sounds like a great rule. Uh, but then, and this is a, a real instance, Facebook uh, had to grapple with a rule like that because someone posted the famous photograph on the Vietnam War of the napalming uh, and uh, a naked ch- uh, young girl running towards the photographer screaming. Uh, I would argue it's it's one of the most uh, iconic images of the 20th century, but uh, Facebook then had to decide, okay, so do we make a historic significance exception to this rule? You know, if if if, if, if or, or if an image is famous, we'd somehow exempt it. Uh, this this kind of stuff is very difficult. And in fact, there are some social media sites that will treat the same content in a different way, depending on how it's portrayed. Uh, for example, I know it was a few years ago, Facebook had, they may still have a policy where if you have uh, an, a video of a child being bullied at school, it's removed if the poster of the video is making fun of the victim but if an anti-bullying charity posts it, then it stays up. So I think we should all just you know, take a step back and, and consider that content moderation is very difficult. It's especially difficult at scale. And at scale, we should expect there to be false positives and false negatives. And in an ecosystem as large as Facebook or Twitter, it will be very easy for people to identify uh, instances of supposed bias. You said that a few years ago, the left had similar outcries against being blocked or being suspended on by certain companies on these platforms. So how is the left feeling about this right now? The left, I would say it was difficult to, to generalize, but I would say the, the left, uh, many people on the American political left find the ongoing uh, discussion about political bias uh, rather puzzling because if, if you're if you're left-wing and you're looking at something like YouTube or Facebook or Twitter, it's it's sort of uh, confusing that conservatives seem to think these are unfriendly companies. They're, they'll point to popular people like, you know, Dennis Prager or Ben Shapiro, who seem to proliferate on a lot of these platforms. Uh, but I, I would also say they, they have complaints about these companies, but not so much when it comes to bias, but uh, they have concerns about uh, harassment, about people being funneled into extremist groups, whether that's um, jihadists or, or white supremacists. And they have concern about bots and foreign infiltration, especially after the 2016 election with Russian interference. So those are more of the, the left-wing kind of complaints. I feel like we're kind of in a weird moment right now because we have Republican senators like Ted Cruz and we have Elizabeth Warren on the other side who agrees that Section 230 is bad. Are you worried that all of these attacks on Section 230 might lead to the government implementing speech codes on the internet and terminating the freedom that has been 
existent for the past 25 years. I do worry about that. However, uh, at the moment, the, the left and the right can't seem to agree on the nature of the complaint. So I haven't seen any kind of legislation that would be able to pass. Uh, however, we should remember that uh, Section 230 was amended only a few years ago uh, in order to make an exception for uh, content uh, associated with uh, human trafficking. And that uh, is, is, I think, telling for, for a few reasons. But one is that it's very difficult to uh, stand up for a law when there are those out in the public saying that that law protects human traffickers, right? Uh, it's very, you know, an uncomfortable position to be in. And now mm-hmm. we're in a situation where you have uh, senators who are talking about legislation that would uh, tackle uh, child abuse imagery. And the, the, the law would basically, the bill would make Section 230 protections contingent on taking steps to address the spread of that imagery. And uh, that's, that's the kind of, I think, uh, the kind of strategy that could see Section 230 amended without a robust defense of Section 230. Because, uh, you know, lawmakers across the country are going to be asked, well, why would you be against a law that makes it harder for people to abuse children? Uh, that's that's the kind of rhetoric that I think does quite well in Washington, uh, despite the fact that, of course, you know, no no moral person wants to make it even appear like you're defending that kind of behavior. Of course, but uh, mm-hmm. those who are uh, who are angry about Section two hundred and thirty are certainly hooking uh, onto that kind of content. Uh, keep in mind when the the human sex trafficking uh, amendment to two hundred and thirty passed in the Senate, there was. There were only two votes against it. Uh, One was Senator Ron Wyden, who was actually one of the authors of Section 230. And the other was Senator Rand Paul, who was maybe flexing some of his libertarianism there. Uh, But it's it's uh, that was very popular. Um, It overwhelmingly passed the Senate. And so I do worry that when it comes to some kind of content like that kind of, you know, child abuse imagery, I, I think you could see there to be a real push. Uh, so you say that you're targeting child abuse imagery, but then you also throw in complaints about bias and harassment. You you have a cocktail that um, may result in a, a nasty Section 230 hangover. So it's just a fear that congressmen will use these seemingly positive movements forward to add random things that... Mm-hmm. Yes, I think there's in the wake of a panic or or upset about all kinds of different things, you'll find that uh, lawmakers take advantage of that. And look, there are a lot of lawmakers who are understandably very upset that uh, people across the world uh, abuse children and use the internet to share images of that. And obviously, that's horrific behavior. Uh, and during a hearing on this issue, Senator Lindsey Graham told an Apple representative, look, if you don't fix it, we will. And that's the kind of uh, rhetoric you, I'm now used to from Congress, which is you big tech companies, you need to just nerd harder and fix this problem. Uh, and you know, it raises all kinds of difficult questions about encryption and privacy and how to safeguard uh, children in the digital age. But I, I do think that amending Section 230 uh, to address that problem would be a mistake. Mm-hmm. You wrote recently in a blog piece published at Cato at Liberty that, quote, too often we think of the freedom of speech to be a freedom that protects speakers f- 
from government censorship and while the freedom to speak is sorry is necessary is a necessary condition for a functioning liberal society it's not the only freedom implicated in what people refer to as the freedom of speech mm-hmm. the freedom of speech entails for entails a freedom for publishers and platforms to associate with whomever they want end quote and then you write quote Companies to disassociate from speech that they consider harmful is especially important during the current crisis. Social media companies have implemented a variety of policies aimed at dealing with COVID-19 misinformation, end quote. Many people see these practices as awful. Can you explain what you think about this issue? Uh, As it relates to COVID-19 in particular? Yeah. Right. It... Isn't a surprise that uh, as the pandemic worsened that many social media companies decided that they would have to come up with policies about COVID-19 misinformation. Uh, They were in a situation where a lot of users were uh, spreading information that uh, the companies thought was potentially deadly. And uh, many people were saying that this was a form of of censorship. And, And my point in that article was to highlight that the freedom of speech is fundamentally a freedom of association issue. And the reason why that's important is uh, you should be free to associate with whoever you want. And if, if, if you are working at the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times and a neo-Nazi submits an op-ed, uh, you should be free to reject that op-ed. That doesn't mean that the neo-Nazi can't write the article and uh, he can try and get it published elsewhere or he could publish it on you know in his basement and hand pamphlets around. It doesn't implicate the neo-Nazi's actual freedom of speech. And if, if the social media site wants to engage in similar disassociation, uh, that's, I think, the freedom that we should uh, that we should respect. Uh, th- it's important for private companies to be able to disassociate and associate with whomever they want. And my point with the, the COVID-19 piece was that uh, we, we should consider that an important freedom, uh, the, the, the freedom of, of Facebook to decide what kind of content it wants its business to be uh, related to. And look, you, you can have criticisms of these policies. Uh, I don't want to make it sound as if I'm defending Facebook or Google or YouTube per se. Uh, All I want to do is to to defend their right to make decisions. uh, And those decisions will be good and bad. But ultimately, uh, when it comes to something like the the COVID-19 pandemic, it's understandable why companies would want to take the step to uh, limit access to certain content. And what I always think about is that if you don't like the associations that a certain company has made, you could always disassociate yourself with them. Even if it's like Twitter or something, you could still do it if you really wanted to. But teach his own. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, you, you, you sometimes hear... Uh, people say that these companies are monopolies, and uh, I just reject that view uh, as, as self-evidently uh, ridiculous. But uh, th- th- there are a trove of different avenues for people on the internet to, to post uh, their thoughts and comments. I-, I can't think of a legal piece. There's not a legal piece of writing out there that can't find a home on the internet somewhere. Uh, and in fact, there's plenty of places where illegal content is posted. But if you have a, a radical political position, there, there are places on the internet to post that idea, to discuss it, to try and spread it. Uh, the fact that it's not allowed by a private company that might be one of the largest uh, doesn't implicate or damage your your freedom of speech in the least. And uh, you know, some, especially conservatives, don't like to hear this, but 
uh, Twitter and Facebook don't have an obligation to host your content and you are still nonetheless free to try and find a home for it. Uh, I, I, I do worry that people oftentimes confuse market dominance with uh, monopoly, but those are two very important, uh, those are two very different things. Mm-hmm. So kind of leading up to my final question, just as a conclusion of the main section 230 part of this interview, mm-hmm. what you've already kind of addressed in a bunch of your answers, but I want to kind of get a recap. What is a good picture of everything that we would lose if Section 230 would be removed? Absent Section 230, if it was just full-on removed, you would see the end of user-generated content, by which I mean uh, tweets, Facebook posts, event pages, consumer reviews, uh marketplaces like Amazon, where people sell things, Etsy, that would all be a thing of the past. Uh, and that's because uh, if if websites were liable for any piece of third-party content that was posted, they would have to screen every single piece of uploaded content before it went live. And that's just too expensive and uh, impossible to do. So I don't think People should uh, be, be calm about the, the potential risk here. Uh, if, if there's significant amendment or repeal of Section 230, the, the internet, uh, as we know it, uh, at the very least changes dramatically and at worst uh, ceases to exist. Uh, I don't think full-on repeal of Section 230 is really on the cards. Uh, what I mm-hmm. imagine is there will be numerous proposals, uh, amendments to it, uh, but it certainly important to consider how valuable we all view uh, third-party content. Uh, I, I think the internet is, is made better by anyone with an internet connection being able to contribute to uh, discussions uh, at many different uh, avenues on the internet. Uh, but uh, absent Section 230 or protection like it, uh, it would be a very, very different internet. Without consumer reviews, how are we going to find out anything about the food we're eating or the clothes we're buying? Well, I mean, that's right, yeah. It would be a shot in the dark, and then like, who wants that? I feel like it would. It makes everything better. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think it's important. Yeah, I do too. And look, that there will be people out there who will say, "Well, what's so great about social media anyway? It's it's a horror show." And and to them, I say, uh, I think it's very easy to highlight the the bad stuff on social media, but I think it's the the net benefits far outweigh the net harms. Uh, and I would also say. That at least I, I think that the emergence of social media is the greatest revolution for speech since the invention of the movable type printing press. Uh, and we should consider that. Uh, and we shouldn't let momentary frustrations win the day in those kind of debates. Yeah, I think that's good. So finally, what is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? That's yeah, a good question. I've I've changed my views about a lot, um, uh, and actually, maybe that would have been a good answer to the first question: is um, people <laughs> your age should consider that you could be wrong sometimes. Um, so when I was when I was seventeen, I had very different political views than I do now, um, and so that's meant that a, a lot of my views have stayed the same uh, politically. But uh, I would say that when I was 17, probably the one that would be most jarring to friends of mine at the time, and even perhaps some family members, is at at the time I was very, very uh, anti-gun rights and thought that 
only the cops and the military should be allowed to have guns. Uh, although I've always actually, I should mention, be skeptical. I'm skeptical of police being armed anyway. But uh, certainly, private gun ownership was something I was very uh, skeptical of, and and I've come around to uh, believing that uh, private firearm ownership is uh, it should be legal. Uh, I didn't come to that because of any. Um, any discovery about the second amendment or anything like that. But I, I read quite a bit of history about the history of gun ownership, especially in the, uh, in the African-American community. And, uh, I've, uh, through, through reading and research and, you know, meeting gun owners, talking to them and um, engaging in more debates, come around to the view that private gun ownership should be legal. Uh, so that's probably one of the biggest issues that I've changed my mind on the most in the last couple of decades. That's really interesting. And I also think challenging your beliefs all the time. I mean, that's how we grow. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I like, I like having discussions where people don't agree because then I have to actually think about what I believe and like Mm -hmm. argue with them with something that actually holds ground. And then that's where you find out, I don't know, anything you find new stuff, old stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Something, um, I, I think I really benefited from uh, going to university and studying philosophy where um, there was no such thing as uh, an obvious truth <laughs> and that uh, questioning everything and making sure that everything was grounded really prompted me to reassess a lot of my views, uh, not just on politics, but also, uh, you know, uh, religion, economics, uh, science, I mean, views, um, views changed uh, in a lot of different fields for me. But I, I certainly, in the context of public policy, my views on, on guns is probably the one that uh, is is most jarring to people who knew me as a teenager. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. No, I learned a lot. I hope that my listeners learned a lot. I mean, I think this is such an extensive topic and it's not even that many words and it's not complicated to understand, but it's still you have to go so deep because there's so much there mm-hmm. and it's really interesting. So thank you so much for talking to me and yeah. No, well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. Just send me a link when it goes live. I'd love to listen to it. Yeah, of course.